Welcome to the Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. For this episode, I'm joined by well-dressed man, as well as fashion HR guru, John Mezzo. John, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. This is fun. So you've spent most of your career in fashion, retail, on the human resources side. Right. Um, just for our listeners, give us some of those career highlights or, or when you knew that that was what you wanted to do as a career. Well, actually, uh, as a younger person, I was convinced I was going to be on stage. I was a theater guy, okay. right? So that was my passion. That was my love. And when I made the decision to move into the traditional work world, I said I need to be in an, in an industry or in a role that was going to leverage those skills around people connectivity. So that's what kind of got me into the HR side. Okay. I wanted to be on the people side of the business. What did you study in college? Was it related to HR, like psychology? Or? It, it was. It was psychology-focused. But um, believe it or not, even at my age, they had an HR management degree. So okay. I got a, a bachelor's in human resources management. Uh, it was a general management major initially, and then met this professor who was an HR consultant, started taking his classes, found a passion for it, and realized immediately that I was going to get to be in front of people and talking and connecting, and I thought I needed to be on the people side of the business. Right. So, and what are the elements of that coursework? Are they paradigms for human interaction? I mean, how, how broad does it go? Because as a major, obviously. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is everything you mentioned. There's a lot of psychology in, in HR. We, we, we do a lot of coaching and counseling and mm -hmm. all those areas of people development and and that, but uh, there's also a more scientific side. It's a lot of organizational design and studying org structures and ensuring that companies are set up to grow, right. but that they're not spending too much. And so it's that kind of nice balance. Yeah. But but the the fashion piece, um, I could admit to you, I kind of fell in, right? So I okay. I my first role was at Macy's executive training program okay. that was at the time we called it the Harvard of retail. Okay. Um, and it was, it was great because it was an immediate lesson to me that you can't be successful in HR if you're not immediately tied to and connected to the business. So as a trainee, I'm writing purchase orders for socks and thinking, why am I doing that? I'm an HR guy. And it was right. a great early lesson that you you're not going to be successful in HR if you don't understand the business you're in. And 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 give us vintage on on this program. So this is 80s. Uh, uh -huh. Late. Uh -huh. late late <laughs> we're, 80s. We're, we're contemporaries, <laughs> so you know. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, 89. 89. Yep. Okay. And um, so yeah, so 80s fashion trends. Yeah, still for sure. A lot of shoulder pad going on in my right. Macy's training suit. Right. <laughs> my one suit that I wore for right. graduation day, but. Um, yeah, that was that was that was the time frame, mm -hmm. and uh, so from Macy's, where did uh, where did the career path? Um, was there about four years, and uh, they were in bankruptcy, so okay. it was a, a tough time, and um, 
jumped over to Warner Brothers Studio Stores. Uh, they were opening right. retail stores and trying to compete with the Disney stores at the time. Right. They're only two years. I, I think they realized they were better at making movies than running right. retail businesses. Yeah. And uh, immediately discovered Ralph Lauren. I was recruited there into their HR department. And that's kind of real, really where it all started. That was my true... That was the Princeton. Yeah, that retail. was the Princeton. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> maybe that should have been the Harvard because, you know... Ralph and well, and all, all the Tigers would say no, it's Princeton, <laughs> right? But exactly. But um, immediately um, immersed myself into the brand. Spent 16 years there. Uh, honestly, never thought I'd leave. Was a lifer. Really, almost was defined by the brand. But um, had an opportunity that was just right for my family and me. And uh, was uh, moved over to the Victoria's Secret brand. And uh, that role was actually uh, not over their stores, for, so it was an interesting experience. It was um, head of HR for their digital business. And for okay. Victoria's Secret, at the time, that was almost a $2 billion website. Wow. So when you, when you think about companies like Ralph and all these other you know, brands you might know being nowhere near that, and they're all thriving and successful. That that particular brand, uh, the online business was so huge, it had its own yeah, HR department. Massive. Yeah, so uh, did that for four years, a lot of back and forth to Ohio. Okay. Uh, that's where they're based. So uh, as, as great as the company is, uh, and yet um, another connection for me was a founder-owner-led business, right? Les mm -hmm. Wexner, Ralph Lauren. Right. Um, got a call from the... Michael Kors people, and um, it felt a lot like going back to Ralph, meaning it was New York-based uh, fashion retailer, founder, owner-led. They were small. They were getting bigger. They were U.S. They were going global. They were private. They went public. So yeah. a, lot, a lot of it felt to me like getting back to that design-driven founder, owner, walks the halls every day. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so this is pre-2011 when they <clears throat> IPO'd. Uh, is... Yes. No, actually, I, I went to VS in 2011. Okay. Um, they, I went the, to Michael in um, 2015. Okay. So they had already gone public, but they had a similar story yeah. To, yeah. to Ralph. So. For sure. Yeah. And, and for our listeners who are not familiar with HR, mm -hmm. I mean, this is somewhat of a loaded question, but, <laughs> you know, I... The titles have, have changed. You know, yeah. I've met so many chief people officers mm -hmm. or chief talent officers yes. or heads of diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. Um, what's the HR function at a fashion brand? I don't know that it's all that different at a fashion brand, except to say um, you you do have to ensure your ultimate responsibility is for the, the what we call the employee life cycle. Okay. From pre-employment, meaning we don't know you exist, mm -hmm. to the hiring of you and all the complex aspects of what it takes to develop you. Right. And where it might be unique for fashion retail is there's just such a, a, a tremendously diverse population married with ops and finance people working and standing right next to highly creative, super um, aesthetic-focused designers and creative types. So right. you have... I'm sure that exists elsewhere, but it's big time in, in well, fashion. So, so describe those columns, because I think I think I heard. You know, when I think of of a fashion brand that has like a Michael Kors mm -hmm. or a Ralph Lauren, its own brick and mortar. Right. I think of retail employees almost as little islands mm -hmm. on each store, right? Because right? they have store managers and 
they're in different states and different yep. cities. And, uh, and then I think of the other employees, whether they are design employees or they're more sort of executive. Right. You know, an executive covers a lot, right? It covers the marketing function. It covers the production function, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. How do those – how do you – view those are they are they three different distinct areas of employees are they two are they 17 um i'd say it's definitely it's probably two or three clearly what typically happens is the field as we call it the in-store person right uh, even at the management level is usually bucketed as a separate entity they're remote they're governed as you know by different laws in different states and, um, and when you speak to them or manage them or build programs for them, you're doing it in ways that has to be um, transmitted to thousands of people across hundreds of locations, right? Yeah. So training programs and policies and um, commission programs and all the things that we do to touch the stores, ways to develop them. That's really a unique group that has to be handled differently. Mm-hmm. On the corporate side... I might make it three by saying that corporate world definitely can, although the work we do may be um, relevant to everyone, you might build um, a talent management program that would be applicable to the creative group and the finance guy. But, But I think in the daily management of it, back to that psychology we talked about, how you manage, how you talk to expectations you have of, of meeting the, the sometimes dry deliverables that we ask for, I think it's important to re- respect the uniqueness and the, the work styles of the difference between a senior vice president of design um, versus, you know, someone in ops or HR. Both do the work, but yeah. they just they just work with them differently. Well, and it's interesting, I mean, to, to almost visualize those three types of employees. Mm-hmm. You know, you certainly have the, – the brand carriers are probably the ones at retail, Right, yep. they have to be, yep. and we'll talk about that. I'd, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to, you know, hear about uh, dress codes and, and policies and things <laughs> yes. like that because uh, that's a it's a nice area where where the law and and personal expression absolutely you know, intersect yes. uh, or buttheads. <laughs> uh, but you know, so 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 they are the brand carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, the designers often are, are unique individuals, right? Mm-hmm. They may be wearing vintage clothes and and paint splatter. You know, you got to sort of let absolutely. them be them. And then your 100%. C-suite executives mm-hmm. are, you know, they, they, they look the, like yeah. us. They're, <laughs> exactly. they're, they're dressed in suits. And, um, right. you know, so, so it's an interesting, you know, ecosystem. Yeah, from I've a, always from tried to be the um, well. approachable. I think one of the things I'm proudest of is creating HR departments that people actually want to interact with and reach out to. So you might, you know, so you look at me today, maybe it's a good example, white, da- white button-down shirt to represent, you know, whatever you want to say, corporate leadership, but then the silver Michael Kors trainers or sneakers, you know, to, to kind of remain connected to people right, and have them right. see us as real. Well, we'll and- get into, you know, what you're wearing, <laughs> because that is going to be a component of the conversation okay, here. Awesome. But um, on the HR function, you know, on, on the many challenges that, uh, that associate managing people, um, diversity, mm-hmm. how... And and this is an agnostic question as to Michael Kors or Ralph Lauren, but sure. you've worked with some of the major, uh, the major companies for whom diversity is a big issue. Mm-hmm. How do you, how, how does a corporation like that handle it? I, I think we look at it in a couple of ways. So one that jumps right to mind is, I think the best companies are doing their best to ensure that you have 
um, at the at the senior most level, clear representation, a, a nice um, balance of mix of of gender and race at the most senior level. And why is that important? It's important because when the thirteenth guy in the in the cube can look to leadership and see people that look like them and remind them of themselves. Mm -hmm. They get inspired to stay. They have the ability to look to that and say, I can be that CFO because she's doing that role right now. Mm -hmm. So I think smart companies are looking to make sure they're diverse at the most senior level because what else happens? That group of highly successful, diverse managers um, are also really connected. They're mentoring. They're, they have a community of people that they're reaching out to. And suddenly you see this nice flow of, of a, a balance and a mix coming to your organization. And obviously diversity is more than just race and gender, yeah. but uh, it's how we talk to people. It's how we work with people. It's the extroverts respecting the introverts in mm -hmm. the meeting room and making sure that they all have a voice. Yeah. So I like to remind people that diversity, I went to the race and gender piece first, but it's, it's so much more than that well it's interesting you know as as a practitioner often when we're having discussions surrounding termination mm -hmm. or potential claims yep. um, that a current or former employee might be threatening right. um, one of the first questions is sort of if, if it's a store location i.e that kind of island i was talking about mm -hmm. well what's the composition of employees at that store location right. or if it's a smaller brand that has say only 35 employees what's right. the overall composition uh, from a socioeconomic from a gender and and, and race basis mm -hmm. um, to evaluate how high the risk of of a claim being brought sure. is do you track that and in tracking it, do you, I mean, is there a concerted effort to balance the various components of diversity right. within a, an organization as big as the ones you've worked at? You know, I, I, I will tell you there, there's never a moment where you say there's a number that, that you're trying to achieve. I think at the core, you know, what, what I've always preached and taught is that diversity management is smart business. Mm -hmm. Surrounding yourself with a mix of people who create a diverse landscape is going to contribute to innovation and uniqueness and different ideas to share. So we just continue to push to our talent acquisition teams and our field leaders because a lot of the field leaders do their recruiting on their own because you just never seem to have enough recruiters yeah. to get to that eight, you know, 800th store. And, and for the <laughs> listeners that don't know what a field recruiter is. Um, basically someone who's probably or, not based in the home state where your right. company is based. They sit in a region, mm -hmm. they learn that market. They know the top five best managers in every mall that they're responsible for. Right. And they're out pounding the pavement. They're sitting on mall benches and they're interviewing right. the next right. store managers. But, but I think, you know, other than the point I raised around ensuring that senior leadership is diverse. I'd say the other thing that, that talent acquisition teams do or recruitment teams is they, they do their best to put together what we call a diverse palette. So a manager or a hiring manager, which is the word we use for someone who has an open job mm -hmm. and is doing the hiring. If we present them a nice blended mix of different styles and ages and races and backgrounds and thought processes and extroverts and introverts, you, you give them this chance to see this nice kind of yeah. world that they can choose from versus giving them one set type, which is not interesting and not driving creativity or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. I think 
you know, back to those those classes of employees um, or categories of employees. Mm-hmm. On the retail side, I, I imagine some brands that are maybe narrower with respect to product offering. The product mm-hmm. offering itself may sort of self-select its customer sure. from a socioeconomic standpoint. Right. There may, uh, do you think that there is a, um, an unfortunate default for brands like that to be looking to hire from a particular socioeconomic class because of that? Or do they feel now the retail environment, you know, should still have diversity, notwithstanding that the customer base itself isn't diverse? Yeah, I think, I think look, companies are smart to, especially in these days, having beyond uh, your wildest imagination in terms of access to data. And we're hiring data scientists now. I didn't know what that was when I was earlier years in my career. But you have all this customer data. You need to be smart and and have your selling floor be a, a microcosm of the market that you're in. So yes, maybe certain brands are going to have a demographic that they sell to, and they absolutely need to represent that. But I always tell people, let's say your demographic is super young. Let's not forget that the grandmother of that person might also be the shopper. She's probably the one with the credit card. And, yeah. and you need to, in some ways, have that environment when someone's looking through the window be an appealing place for the, for the customers right. peering in. Right. Um, well, this is, I mean, we've, we've talked about it, but, but maybe more specifically with your experiences the the way in which the HR department works with the legal department, mm-hmm. and obviously it works with the legal department in a number of ways. Sure. But at the organizations that you worked at, how was that coordination? Was legal embedded in HR? Or was <clears throat> legal separate? It's it's in my experiences, it's often that legal is. Um, I've seen it both ways. It's either a separate entity with a, a chief general counsel reporting into the CEO. That's mm-hmm. how we were at Coors. Yep. Um, I've seen it uh, in my days at Ralph. Legal was under the HR lead. Okay. So, but absolutely attached at the hip. Yeah. And um, especially when companies were large enough to have employment lawyers as a part of their of their team, those employment, law- employment lawyers were the ones that we worked especially Right. Uh, close with. And um, it, it varied. I mean, whether it's helping us build policy documents, right? So we have a business need. And that's really a good point to stop on maybe is everything we do starts with a business need, mm-hmm. right? You talked about dress code, and then we'll get to that. There's an obvious situation. We respond to that by building a policy. And what I've always liked the approach to be is that HR takes a crack at the document, mm-hmm. the policy, the the proposed termination and we bring that to our legal partners less about saying will you make the decision for us right and more about we think this is what it is mm-hmm. and what it should be and then my hope is that our legal partners say yes we agree and on occasion they won't and they'll push back and that's where the yeah. dialogue is and we will ultimately want to ensure that we're aligned with them well you know lee sporn is a good friend of mine, Absolutely. so I'm sure there was overlap there. There was, yeah. I ac- actually at Ralph as well. So I knew Lee from Ralph. I okay. knew Ralph. Sorry, <laughs> I knew <laughs> Lee from Ralph. Right. And uh, he had, he was just 
leaving Coors when I when I got there just gotcha. about. So, so we had a couple uh, of meetings. For, yeah. for our listeners, he was the general counsel. Absolutely. Um, at both of those places. Um, and now teaches down in uh, down at University of Pennsylvania, a fashion law course. Yeah. Yes. Um, he, in fact, is helping Barbara Colson and I with the chapter on employment law oh. uh, for the fashion law textbook that we're working on with Carolina That's Press. That's exciting. So, That's great. Yes. And very much needed. Yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and, and evolving. Um, well, I mean, it's such a rich subject here. Let's <laughs> let's um, let's pivot to maybe just a, a practical question. How does a termination go? Like, just walk us through a termination. Oh wow! You know, the evaluation and the process. Sure. And I guess I, I need to give you some facts. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, you you are terminating within a store uh, a Korean American. Uh, 23 year old college graduate um, whose performance sales performance was relatively low mm-hmm. um, and I'll let you go from there I mean sure <clears throat> I mean I will I will want to know the full makeup of the person age race gender uh, but that's not going to ever be the driver right and I'm not trying to just make a politically yeah, yeah. correct statement here. Um, you, the concept of termination starts way before any of the wrongdoing, right? It starts with building a landscape where you have clear and communicated guidelines around, using your example, sales expectations. Mm-hmm. My hope is that this person who's about to be discharged for, for poor selling has been placed through our progressive discipline policy, right? So today isn't the first day we spoke to you about that, you know, hey, Sam, you can't sell. You're not good at it. Not really sure why you're here. Right, Um, right. We would have spoken to him, coached him, shown him the numbers, posted up on the wall that he's 18th out of 18 people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. We would have um, ensured that he knew that his job was at risk way before he was termed. That's why I actually always say terminations or, or firings of people is actually not that it's not difficult, but it's often very clear. You've reached that point where you've right. said, you know, Doug, this is probably not going to be a surprise for you, right. which the is different. Is yeah. Different than the alternative, which is probably one of the more difficult things an HR person has to do, which is We've made a business decision that the org structure doesn't work and your role, even though you're a high performer, mm-hmm. is no longer on our org chart and right. your job's being eliminated. Those are the especially difficult ones yeah. where compassion and my high level of empathy, which I'm proud to say I have, but it's those nights where I take it home yeah. and, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but would be a night for single malt scotch, right? So that's... that's. <laughs> if it weren't the morning, we, we, we would have that in our cups. Exactly. Um, no, I, I, I'm, you know, I mean, a, as an attorney, mm-hmm. you know, I've been present at, at multiple terminations as well, right. least least favorite part of the job, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah. I guess just, just maybe diving in a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. how does the actual process go? So who's in the room when it's done? Sure. What are the what are the words that that whoever is saying it is coached to say? Right. Um, if legal's in the room, if that's certainly a possibility. Um, if not, there's often at least one other person in the room as a witness. It could be the person's manager. It could be another HR person. Mm-hmm. There'll usually be one driver of the conversation. So say it was me and it was you. I was talking to. Um, one of the things that I teach 
is to ensure that this is the shortest path to the end of the conversation. This is not a time for love that tie, how's the family. This is, Doug, this is going to be a difficult conversation. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess this is not going to be a surprise because we, you've already been placed on final warning for your sales performance. The, the business uh, expectations are at a certain level and you're consistently not meeting those expectations because of that. Or I might have added a line that said, if you recall in your final warning, we said that if this continued, it could lead to something up to and including discharge. Well, unfortunately, that's been the decision that we've made to to discharge you effective immediately. And then we would take them through the nuts and bolts of unemployment benefits and all of the you know contact information all the dry now let's let's ratchet the heat up a little bit Mm -hmm. let's say it's a high risk situation let's say that they are a poor performer Mm -hmm. that that data is objective however um in the middle of this conversation the termination conversation the employee says well you know last week my manager pushed me into one of the fitting rooms and, and fondled my body. Okay. Um, and uh, I didn't report it because he said that I'd be fired, mm-hmm. and now I'm being fired. Right. Um, I'm going to go talk to a lawyer about this. Sure. Well, um, I would – so there's usually two types of pushback. One is they disagree. That's still a pretty – clear path to we're going to stick with Disagree this decision. on the objective data with respect to sales. Right. In other or... words, I think you just, it's just because you don't like me. Right. I think, you know, my numbers are low, but it's because you give me the bad hours during right. the week. That's something we probably would still push through. What mm-hmm. The example you gave, I'd probably make the decision to say, well, that's new information. Right. I didn't have that before. Sorry that you didn't bring it to us sooner. That's very serious. We take those allegations seriously. And so I would probably weigh in and say that we should suspend this person mm-hmm. at this point, conduct the investigation into what they complained about. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe before they left, I might ask them for a written statement. Yeah. And then we'd, we'd go to work and we would investigate the situation because yeah. um, that may or may not affect the discharge decision. Right. But, right. but we need to know that. Right. And, you know, I, I take the approach of leadership management will always have the burden greater than the more junior person because they have the power. Yeah. So I, I could, and that's send, the law as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know. I didn't just make that yeah. up. Right. <laughs> and so that investigation is done and documented. Yes. In, and, and how is that done? Is that a memo to file? Is that there's an actual form that you use so that it's the same? Uh, yeah. There's usually a, a pretty, pretty standard templated yeah. form that we'd have them fill out. Um, and we'd have them sign it. Uh, I know some companies have, uh, you know, it depends on the situation too. Oftentimes we have issues of theft and uh, the issue might be brought to us through our, our law, um, loss prevention department, Yeah. which in addition to legal becomes another great partnership that we make. Right. They are, this is a terrible analogy, but they're almost like police in that they unearth situ- the situation and then they bring us the case, if you will. Got it. And, so, and those are in-house people or is that a security firm? Uh, no, you might find a, an external third party that would be higher, you know, someone that we'd have for, let's say, a guard at a door. Right. But loss prevention is typically embedded in the company. And, and loss actual- prevention, for those of you that don't know what the term means, it's basically checking your bag and your person for items that were on the sales floor <laughs> that you're leaving with. And, and Absolutely. And, and as you get more elevated in loss prevention in terms of your role, it's not unlike other areas where 
senior loss prevention is not just executing things like bag checks. That's what their team will do. They're driving um, uh, policies in partnership with HR around safety Mm-hmm. And uh, things like that. So have, have there also been instances, you know, with with so many purchases now being online, mm-hmm. um, and if you have a credit, a store credit or a gift credit card, have there been sort of within those islands of stores shenanigans around store credit cards or you know other ways to, in effect, from a paper trail, right? Show no, I bought this, but essentially you you somehow obtained a massive amount of credit. Right? Are you saying more could could an employee do that? Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you'd be, well, maybe you wouldn't be amazed because you're in the <laughs> business. So, um, yeah. I mean, we've we've kind of seen it all in terms of employees finding uh, ways in which to, you know, unfortunately abuse the system and loss prevention. Uh, that group plays a huge role for us because they will do the study. They will do the analysis. They will look at an example I can remember was an employee who um, it's within our policy to buy something online with your discount and have it sent to someone else. Right. What's and it's also okay for it to go to this other address. Right. But it's not okay for the credit card to be someone else's credit card. Because then yeah. it's John's discount that only he's eligible for. And somehow Doug Hand is getting the product. It's getting charged to his card and he's getting it at the discounted rate. That's right. discount abuse. And so they'd bring us cases like that where they'd say person X has made $70,000 worth of purchases, none of which were paid by their credit card and none of which went to their home. Right. So right. We'd, we'd have to call that a red flag. And yeah, we'd, side you business. Know, yeah, side so, business. Yeah. Um, other Examples from the front line. I mean, so social media is massive. Um, Employees typically are governed by a policy with respect to what they can post, what they can't, what they can't post about the company. Um, What are some instances where that's been violated Um, or well, and instances of just on someone's social media feed, something was posted that was so objectionable, maybe related to the company or not, that it resulted either in a termination or a warning? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, we, we have very clear social media policies. So we, we uh, like everything else I mentioned, we would start with, with you know, depending upon the severity of it, um, with conversations, reminders, asking people to sign the policy so that they know. Yep. But um, in some of the cases I can remember, the things that have raised flags for us have been around... Um, sexual content, nudity, um, people, you know, referencing our company in negative ways. So we have, you know, a lot of the policy speaks to ensuring that people are not misrepresenting themselves or, or, you know, having a negative view of the organization. Or um, we, we do have people that have created, you know, Instagram accounts for their business Mm-hmm. And those are a little more secure because it's by invite only. And it's yeah. actually very often used as ways to promote um, dis- district and regional managers who are field leaders will use those environments to say, hey, here's a video we want you all to watch. Or So it has a lot of very positive aspects right. to it. But like everything else, it has to be governed for yeah. you know, extreme uses and for inappropriate con- uh, content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, so. in smaller organizations, it can be tricky because it's very difficult for certain consumers to know 
a voice of the brand, you know, right. somebody who, you know, is a store manager is, is posting about some store event that's happening and right. showing assets from the company along right. with that, it, it starts to sound like the company speaking. It's made it, what's made it more difficult is in the, in the world we're in now with traffic numbers being significantly down, mm-hmm. one of the ways HR is involved in helping the business thrive is through um, things like building uh, policies around employees bringing their own devices to work, clienteling, mm-hmm. getting apps where they can reach out to their customers. All that is necessary in this day and age where I need things to bring you in because yeah. you're just not coming in like you used to. But with that comes, again, you know, lots of legalities around data what are privacy. they saying, data privacy, and, the and fact that you're directly ma- contacting uh, on behalf of the company yes. someone that hasn't consented potentially right. to you having their email address or their phone number to right. text them. Yeah. I mean, there are so many ways to be contacted. Right. These or days. you're a very passionate, hardworking employee who's thriving and your numbers are off the charts. But we find out that you're doing a lot of your clientele at 1030 at night, sitting on your couch in your pajamas. Thank you for the hard work, but you're technically off the clock and now I'm required to pay you. But right. I can't if I don't know you're doing that. Right. So there's, you know, complexities. I joke with my friends in finance and say everything you do is black and white. Everything I do is in a gray. Right. World. Well, let's talk about that because there are smaller brands that we've worked with um, that, believe it or not, and they haven't had in-house HR. That right. is believable. But sure. um, consequently, haven't really had a handle on exempt versus non-exempt employees. Mm-hmm. Maybe just describe that distinction and some of the pitfalls that a company that hasn't recognized that distinction sure. can, can find itself in. Well, ex- exempt is your, your management, and <clears throat> all that title means is you're exempt from ever earning overtime. Jokingly, we say that means the company can work <laughs> you to the bone. Right. And, exactly. 4,000 um, hours. Yeah, I mean, you know, the benefits for that person is they – they probably have greater freedoms. I have a doctor's appointment. I come in at 1030. My, my pay is the same. I, right. But I work till 1030 and my pay is the same, right? Uh, that's like a leadership mindset or an executive mindset. The non-exempt people are, are your hourly employees and they, and they are required to be paid for every single hour that they work. And um, I don't know how deep you want me to get into, but I'll say one of the other complexities is around what roles get named exempt versus non-exempt? Yeah. Because companies have been accused in the past of calling people exempt who probably shouldn't be. And the requirement is that you spend the bulk of your time doing management things. That's one of the categories. One of there, there are several. <clears throat> right. uh, some relate to creative design employees. Right. But I've seen companies that consider not only the creative director, who right. is clearly exempt, but all the way down the chain to you right. know, the lowest pattern maker. Mm-hmm. And they've just been under the assumption that, no, we've let them all know that they're exempt. Right. We've classified them as exempt, mm-hmm. so they're exempt. The law just doesn't see it that way. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I can see them you know, thinking that because they're saying even the lowest level person is highly creative and they're doing things that take wild amounts of imagination and skill. But um, that would be a tough yeah. one to sell. And so we have to often do studies. And, and again, all of this that we're talking about, that, that sort of lives on the slightly drier side of, of things that we do in HR, right? I mean, right, because it involves the lawyers. <laughs> you know, it's, well, yeah. So, I mean, we, we also love the, you know, all the development areas of HR that we get involved in, in, 
and I mentioned earlier the life cycle of employees and the the teaching moments and stuff like that. But but uh, well, maybe yeah. talk about some of that. The team building elements, or the you know, what are some of the 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 fun mm-hmm. things sure. that HR gets to be involved in, and um, you know, h- how do they do, do those come out of a learning from being trained in HR, mm-hmm. or are those kind of the wacky? <laughs> Warby Parker type that like, hey, we're just going <laughs> right. to call today, uh, you know, Bike Tuesday and yeah, everybody you know, rides a bike in. I think, it, I think it runs the gamut. Like you have to have those – people are asking for these things more now, you know, bring your children to work day. We do bring your kids to work day and then people are asking bring your pet to work day. Right. It's <clears throat> a lot of that. We do summer Fridays and all that other stuff. So I think you have to have those things. I mean, you know – Google has a rock climbing wall. I don't know that many people have that, but you know, those are the things that make you, you know, on the best companies to work list. I think people just want to know that you're sensitive to um, their work life balance. Yeah. I heard an expression: people want their nine to five to feel like they're five to nine, meaning companies give them flexibility to be on the move and not tied to a desk and 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 mobile and on their phones and and that's what I think smart companies are moving towards with flex hours and occasionally working from home but slightly on the more formal side but still fun are all things like development programs where you you give people incentives to thrive and win win things when they perform better or just the pure aspect of what I love to teach is just how does one take ownership for their own career? I often talk to people about that you can't promise, you, you can't be guaranteed that you're going to have a manager who cares about your development. One of my bosses once said, no one will care more than you about your own development. So yeah. I, when I mentor and coach people, I talk to them about putting things like my development on their agenda when they're meeting with their boss and making sure that they build development plans for themselves that says over and above my goals and all the business stuff I'm supposed to deliver, what are we working together on to make me better? What muscles mm-hmm. am I getting to stretch at the gym, right? So if you tell me, John, please work on your public speaking, I might come back to you and say, in what ways are you putting me in that scenario to help me <laughs> build that muscle? We both agree right. it's an opportunity for me, so then let's let's work on that together. And we try to coach managers to make sure they spend time on people's development that yeah. way. So. Okay, well, so let's talk about a touchy subject, which is which is dress codes, dress policies, sure, um, and and specifically retail employees. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as as avatars of the brand, right? right? I mean, you're selling the stuff. You got to be wearing this stuff. Yep. So walk me through, you know, a typical dress policy, and sure. maybe isolate some areas where where it's broken down. Sure. Um, well, it it does start with the brand, right? Because it's going to be different. Some companies choose uniforms, and I know you know this. Once you make that choice, you have other, you have some clarity, and you have some ease, right. and I don't have to worry about the fashion choices that someone made. Mm-hmm. But I. I have to dry clean. I have to own other cost-related issues with that. And um, one could argue it's also less interesting to the customer. And so... um, Can't wear a current season if it's a uniform. Yeah. Right? So so it's... um, So what what we have found ourselves doing is um, we, over and above giving employees a a robust discount, Mm -hmm. we we give them what's called a wardrobing um, program. So Mm -hmm. several times per season they get to shop within the store they work um, and are given actual pieces footwear 
dresses, men's clothing, and so on and so forth. And so there are wardrobing moments, which helps us as a leadership team say, I can give you ask, you know several things to choose from, and it's a finite number of things, so I know when you choose whichever you want for your body type or so on. Um, it's going to be in line with what we'd like you to wear, and um, and that helps us kind of shape the look of the floor, and it allows everyone to stay current. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the sidebar issues with wardrobing are things like piercings, um, okay. tattoos, hair color, Right. Those are tough. And I'm laughing because I'm looking at you saying to find the right words. I remember once trying to say something like you, you can't just say natural hair color. What does that mean? Right. Right. You have to be careful. You're not discriminating against any one group. I think we once found really bad language and said something like fair colors normally found on a human head or something <laughs> like that. Um, but but, you know, I've seen, you know, companies I've worked for, they've said, you know, no visible tattoos, but then we might make a choice to put a model in an ad that has a tattoo. And then suddenly you're thinking, Hmm, do I want to keep that policy? Cause you want the inside to kind of represent what's happening on the right. inside. So, so a lot of discussion. Well, it's, that. you know, look, the laws of style, the yeah. book that you read, <laughs> um, Absolutely. you know, uh, I talk about personal presentation as an important component of your work. Right. And uh, your observer's comfort level with who they're dealing with. Yeah. Certainly, as a lawyer, that's best captured at least for a man in tailored clothing. I think, yeah. and um, you know, so I I tend to wear suits. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, as both an executive, mm-hmm. but also head of HR, so maybe right. more of an exemplar mm-hmm. uh, to to employees. How do you choose to present yourself? And and we'll just dovetail this question with what you're wearing today because you look pretty magnificent. Oh, and, and you are doing – it's not a high-low. What would it be called? I mean, the, the sneakers are very I, – I find it very difficult to pair sneakers with tailored clothing. It feels very weird to me, I have to you've, admit. <laughs> you've pulled it off today. Um, so just go through the, 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 the what you're wearing, what season, sure. um, and the why. Um, well, so um, – you know, unlike a lot of your guests, I'm I don't claim to be a super, you know, fashionista. I just have a passion for it. I'm the guy who's always telling his friends, you know, dude, that suit's way too big on you. You don't need to wear a suit that looks like a circus tent. You can right. wear tighter fitting clothing. But um, today, most of what I'm wearing is theory. Okay. Um, including the button down shirt. I don't have to do the same with the same, but I just happen to be today through on this suit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, wanted, you know, and I think, oh, the core, the sneakers are cores. Okay. Um, and they've got a little metallic. Yeah. They're a little, them. they're a little, um, I don't know if tin you're man. enough to bring those into the shop. Yeah, sure. Viewers. I can okay, do that very for nice. you. Uh, you know, and then um, the pop of, uh, colorful, a, a little color, little yeah. color on the sock. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think there has to be for me in a start with the, with the work day, um, a nice marriage between professional, serious but but always allowing humor and mm-hmm. fun and that might be some of the theater background that I mentioned earlier yeah. like I I don't want to ever take myself or my role too seriously or else people wall us off and they don't see us as approachable so yeah. um, it's rare that I'd ever wear a tie it's just not the culture in the companies I work for sales but, but you know what I go, so I go back low. to yeah I know <laughs> I mean and, and I look Ralph, does Michael Kors even make ties we do okay yeah. Um, I own a couple, and I debated whether <laughs> to wear them. Uh, I mean, obviously, Ralph 
has to always make ties because that's yes. where he started. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. And um, he cut him out of tablecloths when yep. he was coming up. So, but you know, Ralph used to always say, "You dress for the day, right? Are you the elephant hunter? Are you the writer? Are you the right. creative designer?" And he was always that when he wore yeah. the pinstripe suit i would know okay he's talking to wall street today or right, or he's right. in design meetings so he's got the jeans and the the, the big belt buckle, buckle. Or yeah, yeah so yeah. um i loved that about that that lesson that i feel like i got from working there but uh but you know honestly i've worn a track suit to work i think when i met you before i was wearing a track jacket mm-hmm. i we don't have to be overly formal but i always ask i want the team to be on brand mm-hmm. and even if it isn't um, the brand you work for, um, something, especially in the stores, that's a requirement we ask for is if it's not the brand, can you ensure that it, it's, um, yeah. it's brand like, well, so on the suit a little bit, we'll stay on the suit. Cause mm-hmm. I know Michael makes suits. I just, just putting a pin in that. I mean, my, my first wife actually worked for Michael back just after the chapter 11, I mean, like way, way back mm-hmm. when it was Michael, Lance, and, you know, just, just a few PR pe- people. Wow. Um, I wish she'd gotten equity. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I know Michael makes suits because she got the discount, mm-hmm. and I used to go, you know, shopping. Uh, that, right. that old store on Madison up in the s- high 60s. 60s, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, men's suiting. You know, the, the demise of, of men's suiting, the death of men's suiting has been sort of prognosticated yeah. about by, uh, by many commentators. What are your thoughts there as a professional, but as also someone who, who sees everybody at retail and how they put themselves together? I, I mean, this isn't, you know, I hope you don't mind. I wouldn't treat it as a Coors or a Ralph or any question. I think it's just, in, in general, I, I always say for a man, to your point, it is the easiest thing you can do, right? It's it's hanging there. It's a pant and a it's jacket. It's for animals. It's it's right. <laughs> and I I actually love doing it because I just enjoy dressing up. And I think um, I'll always when I coach people or mentor them, I talk to them about you, if you're going to skew in one direction in the workplace, skew towards you know that look. And I think a great thing for men is you know jeans and shoes and a jacket because it still really feels dressed up. Mm-hmm. But it's it's totally comfortable and and cash. I I think it's just I look at friends who are in in finance. There, I thought that would never happen there, and they're not doing suits every day. Yeah. So I look at it as I like having it as an option, and it's just become an option that I choose less and less as time goes on. But yeah. I still buy new suits and like doing that. And and yeah. uh, I'm certainly not a design expert, just the HR guy, but, but I did always pride myself on wanting to be on brand in whatever company I worked for. Yeah. You know, now for, how about ties? So you never wear the tie or not never infrequently. I but mean, like yours, I'd wear in a heartbeat. I think that's awesome. I love the knit, the okay. square. I, I think that's like, think cause Brooks I remember Brothers. those when I was in the eighties growing up and they were, they were in. Yeah. And if I still had them, I could pull out an old tie and actually wear that. I think that's pretty cool. But I just find that that I need a break, color or texture, or yeah. both wise. You're right. Here if I'm wearing a suit, because otherwise it looks maybe like I'm I don't know, just in a uniform. Now you've you've got the nice little pop of the pocket square, which I noticed matches the socks in terms of <laughs> color palette, which is very nicely done, well executed. Is that your your little, you know, differentiator? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you, though. Like, one of the decisions I made this morning was, you know, how much white space was going to be here. And right, even thought right. about just doing a sweater, but I was like, uh, I don't know about that. Or the that. big, the big chain. Yeah, or, yeah. Exactly. With the Volkswagen symbol. <laughs> exactly, you know. Or Mercedes. You know, right. I grew up in Brooklyn, so, right, you know, I, right. you know, uh, didn't know style when I was a kid growing up. I think I wore red pants and white capizios to see Rocky okay. Three. So, capizios. you know, that was yeah. Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. You might want to edit that part out. Um, <clears throat> anyway, but yeah, I, I'm the same way. I think this could regularly feel a little bare. So I would probably, more often than not, not choose a white shirt unless I was doing a tie. Mm-hmm. So you'd probably see this on me more regularly, but with like a denim um, button-down shirt. Love gotcha. that chambray kind of yeah. um, Textural differentiation yeah, yeah, love is, that. is really... Uh... Again, that's well. uh, you know I'll I'll even do like the chambray shirt and the jeans and sometimes people will joke and say oh doing the double denim there I'm like right. yeah that's okay if you the break Canadian it up with a brown belt or they yeah. call it yeah yeah <laughs> exactly. but yeah for sure and yes. um, you know blazers to your point mm-hmm. so outside of the suit mm-hmm. um, and not even really blazers I mean what what you would properly call an odd jacket mm-hmm. you know yep. it does not pair with the pants right uh, can be a great look and I think often looks better in that context without a tie mm-hmm. because with the tie and then different color pants, there's just a lot going right. on I'm hoping after today's podcast that all your uh, podcast listeners are going to start asking their HR people for fashion advice right. yeah. <laughs> not likely <laughs> to happen well, what brands do you like from a design perspective? I mean, obviously, you've got your defaults to, to mm-hmm. the places you've been and, and you know, your, your fond feelings um, for them. But, yeah. but from a design perspective, in terms of menswear or womenswear, who's doing it right? Um, you know, it's, it's so weird. You know, I thought you might ask me that question. I don't have a wide variety. I've been the guy who's typically worn the clothing of the place he's worked to the point of exhaustion but um but i do love that discount i know i know it's so hard because i say to myself well that's the kind of stuff you can wear on the weekends and why wouldn't you buy your own brand so you can wear it to work honestly what i find myself wearing on the weekends is so much is is what we call athleisure now i'm in you know nike and 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 um and all these you know like just track jackets and you know um that puts you squarely yeah. in the majority of but, but I love, consumers. You know, I like Burberry. I like I like that sort of classic look. I just love a crisp black or or you know raincoat and you know with yeah. the short jeans and shoes. That's very and, Ralph too. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know. I think that was my DNA, and that's where. So I'll still shop at Ralph every now and then. I when I was at VS, I didn't have a brand to wear, and I know this isn't going to wow your like super high end fashionista people, but I found the J Crew Men's Store and thought that was great for me, and the Ludlow suits fit me well, and they were yeah. they were slim, and it was my body type. Well, and one so, of my clients, know. Todd Snyder, used to design there, now has his own brand. Um, you know, I think J Crew, and, and now we can pivot to to some retail woes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, J Crew obviously has has been in trouble for a mm-hmm. while. Some of the quality has has clearly gone down. Right. I know that uh, they're selling Madewell, um, which will generate capital for them, and mm-hmm. I, and I think they'll get it back on track because yep. J Crew for decades yep. was a tremendous value proposition, mm-hmm. and I think still can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to other to, specific to retail, I mean, we've got Barney's going through Chapter Eleven mm-hmm. a few days ago. Forever Twenty One announced. Just read that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And now there's a whole thing about, um, I think as recently this morning or the other day, just about the pure number of vacant real estate 
uh, retail storefronts, right? Yeah. And I think that's a sign of, uh, I know one of the things I was working on um, at Coors was um, the fact that we had to be smart and right. and cut some brown leaves off mm-hmm. trees, right? It was in no way a sign of the lack of growth. There's an amazing growth plan, right. but, but you have to be smart and close underperforming stores. We didn't invent that concept. It was yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. And, but when you do that, you know, you're hopefully growing e-commerce at the same or better rate right. so that your total is still growing yeah. um, or you're growing through expansion to other parts of the world like Europe and Asia and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, it's exciting to see a growth plan. And back to the HR pieces, we feel like we contribute through helping businesses study what's where where is the right place to move on from. And then yeah. of that, then we get involved with the people and say, okay, this store is closing and how do you then make sure you save the talented people and you find other work and other roles right. for them? So Right. No, that's a, that's a big component of it too you know, because so. back to sort of my island analogy, mm-hmm. you know, you've got some strong performers at each store Absolutely. usually and you, you don't want to lose that talent but because right. the store itself is typically regional, mm-hmm. unless you're in a big metropolitan center it's where hard. they can just move, you know, <clears throat> 20 blocks hard. away. Right, that's difficult. You know, to uproot and move to another state. It's easier to do be. in the bigger cities in corporate right. roles. You can try to save. Um, it's true. That is yeah. true. In those remote locations, we unfortunately sometimes have to lose good people. Well, and yeah. one question that I haven't asked and, and, and want to ask from more of a legal perspective, um, what, how do you feel about restrictive covenants? And, and, and here I'm talking about, and, and I want your reaction with respect to retail employees, um, non-competes and non-solicits that, uh, of course, mm-hmm. last for as long as you're employed. Right. But what about tail periods if someone's being paid severance <clears throat> or, you know, what, what, what are the policies mm-hmm. of, and you don't need to name any brands, right, sure. but just, um, you know, h- how has that been? And I know before I let you answer that when you do have real strong performers, mm-hmm. often they've got a book of business, right? Mm-hmm. They have clients. Yeah. So you don't necessarily want superstar employee X walking out the door across the street to Burberry and taking all of those cores or Ralph or other clients with him or her. Right. Um, How do you handle that? And how do you feel about it? I've, I've been more of a fan. I've been of the belief that it's really tough unless you're super, super senior level people that maybe have it baked into a contract. I, I find it really hard to legally prevent someone from going where they want to go. So I've been a fan more of the non-solicit than the non-compete. There's a lot of complexity around upholding the non-compete in places that I've worked where they've had it. It's really, really hard to enforce. And um, I like the Mm non-solicit. So for example, in places I've worked where if you've you work for the company automatically. You have a year non-solicit. Maybe if you're more senior and you received equity, we might have asked you to have a two-year non-solicit. Right. So I can say if Doug is a high performer and he left us, I can rest assured for two years that he can't come in our in our playground and play in our sandbox and take and, our people. and non-solicit with respect to your employees or your customers or both. I've dealt less with the customer piece. Right. Um, Because that's really de facto a non-compete, right? If I I can't bring my customers. (laughs) Right. And obviously my customers are free Mm -hmm. agents. They can 
go wherever the, they want to yeah. go. We but, typically tell people we own your client book because the companies do, right, right. right? But if I know I'm leaving and I yeah. want to, I have 300 clients. Do I do I not know enough to remember their names or write them yeah. down somewhere else? Yeah. And to your point, then I show up in place the next place, and uh, and I'm honest enough to know that as recruiters. If I want to talk to you, I'm hopefully going to bring you in in hopes that I can benefit from your clients, right? right? So it it works in both ways. And, you know, we have this HR world. And if you were an HR partner and I was an HR, you were at Gucci and I was at, at Ralph. And I'd say, hey, you know, we've noticed several people yeah, how do those company. how do those conversations go? You pick up the phone and you say, it's where "Sally the comes in." It's a little mobster. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to send the guys the bats. <laughs> I'm, no, it's it's. Um, so what I've done is if it's if it's blatant, like yeah. like I had a case where you know several of the people that have left of late have been going to these. Um, uh, I don't know what the what we're calling them. These. Uh, Marijuana companies. Okay. Uh, I forget the names. Yeah, is, they're they're you know they're selling. So it's very clear when two people from the same company go to these really unknown places, and we've called them and we've said, well, we're not sure if you're aware that so and so has a non solicit. So we couldn't stop him from coming to you, but the fact that he took so and so, he's in violation of his non solicit, and we are actually going to enforce it, and you'll be getting an invoice from yeah. us, and yeah. we'll send it. And sometimes they'll pay. Sometimes and they the won't. invoice is with respect to the legal fees that you incur. Yeah, in or the with fees that? to replace that person. So let's say they're a district manager in the field. We've we maybe determined that the cost to backfill that role mm-hmm. is pick a number, right. whatever, uh, and we might. Yeah. And that invoice that. is sent to the former employee or to the new company? It's sent to the employee because they're the one that we're actually in the that relationship with. you've got the contract with. with right? But typically they run to their new company. Right, right. And to prevent that, sometimes if I knew you were going to pick a company, we might ahead of that send them a note proactively that says, FYI, the person you just hired, congrats, but they're yeah. under a non-solicit. Please be aware. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of the approach we take. Um, it's It's hard to collect anything it's more about just saying well okay we you know we'll we'll want you to maybe just extend the non-solicit or we give them a strong finger shake and you know so well um pivoting a bit to conglomerates okay so michael kors is now capri holdings it is uh versace and jimmy chew right those were the two big acquisitions Mm -hmm. Um, Coach is now Tapestry mm-hmm. and is Stuart Weitzman and Kate Spade. Right. And this is the playbook that the European conglomerates have, you know, been been playing from for a couple of decades now. Right. Do you think it'll work here in the U.S.? <laughs> and are there – well, let me stop there. Right. Do you think it'll work? But the second follow-up mm-hmm. question is what are the efficiencies from an HR perspective mm-hmm. of, of having a conglomerate? Are there back right. office elements to HR that even across brands can sure. be – meaningful um, well first of all i think i we hadn't talked about this but i've actually moved on from cores mm-hmm. so uh, from capri uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh we don't have to talk about this but i've been finding some interest in actually starting my own consulting firm okay in an effort to kind of bring what i've done for 30 years to uh either smaller businesses or the individual but that's a side conversation um the conglomerate thing um i i can only speak from my own experiences to say um there, there's a. I think in this particular case, there was a conscious decision to have three very strong, powerful 
brands come into one place and be a holdings company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that um, th- that the plan was to have everyone kind of continue to run their own businesses. There's still presidents of all the businesses and all the design worlds are completely... To your point, you make a good one, which is the, the back of house, certainly technology and systems-wise and, and all of those things can be integrated and looked at. Um, that's really where we were when I mm-hmm. left, which was where our efficiencies, uh, there were still separate HR departments for all three brands, okay. um, w- all under one chief HR officer. So that was you know one sense of yeah. place of unity. But there, it was really very, very early stage. Um, will it work? I have no idea, except to say that I like everyone else, I can listen to the very public um, Wall Street calls. And it always sounds to me like the street is very excited to hear about these other brands in addition to um, Coors when we, when we were just Coors. Yeah. So it, it seemed it seems like the response is great, that people are happy to see the, the, the three together. Um, I, I think it's way, way too early to know what the impact will be on those three in particular. Yeah. But I was at Ralph when they bought Club Monaco. Right. Um, and at right. the time, I don't know that we thought it was the right thing. And I have to ask them now what they think of that decision. But um, I was that. at a big law firm when, <clears throat> when you sold it. Uh-huh. I actually did that sale. Oh, really? Um, wow. I mean, it was a Canadian company, so uh-huh. it was a lot of Canadian law elements. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I think um, there, there is a lot to learn from, e- from each other. And um, it was... Also, those brands are quite distinct. I mean, obviously, Versace is, is a very unique yeah. proposition. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy Choo is a product category, but all luxury. Whereas I think Tapestry's approach has been a little bit different mm-hmm. in terms of, of price point and, and luxury. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all I can say, though, is I thought it, I loved that we did it because it was always stated as part of our plan. Mm-hmm. And I just love when, when you can have a strategy and then actually deliver on it. And so I, you know, I always kind of give us, you know, give the course team a thumbs up and say, you said you were going to do this. You wanted to grow and have acquisitions and you've done that. And I, I think it was, a, you know, I think it will be well a executed. Will, yeah, or as George Papard would say, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> Says the that A-team. You'll get that reference. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Well, guys get the... we are out of time. Awesome. But thanks so much. That's a wrap. All right. And um, thanks for coming in and, and sharing with our listeners uh, your sage wisdom on uh, HR, retail, uh, and the brands you've worked with. Thanks, thanks very much. It was my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Doug. Bye now, listeners. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.